0: today's podcast, I'm actually here in sunny Melbourne. I can't believe I'm saying that. I coming it. from not
1: know how sunny it Life-driven
0: <laughs> Sydney. But I'm here with John Clements from Jackson Clements Burrows. And we're actually in the award-winning and Hawbury Hunt residential winner for 2021, The Divided House. Welcome, John. Thank you. I was just saying to you before, walking through the house and seeing all the brick it doesn't disappoint at all from the photographs that we've shown and it's such a beautiful house. Well done.
1: Thanks, thanks. Yeah, well, the bricks are obviously a, a kind of key element for the house. Both and,
0: um, internally, externally and everywhere else. I yeah,
1: think. yeah, yeah.
0: Before we get started on, on brick, I just thought maybe we could talk a little bit about growing up for you. Was that here in Melbourne?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Melbourne nearby in the southeastern suburbs and, um, yeah, so I'm very Melbourne person. I grew up in Malvern and um, in a suburban environment, tearing around on my bike with my mates and so forth. I actually lived next door to the brickworks, the original Malvern brickworks, which was next door to Robert Menzies Reserve. So I spent a lot of time around bricks when I was a kid. <laughs> we used to climb into the brickworks and, you know, on the weekends we used to explore this old brickworks and go into the kilns and we kind of built cubby houses in the piles of bricks that were at the back of the yard and so forth. I'd have even had a couple of cheeky cigarettes down there <laughs> as a kid, you know. So that was kind of my younger upbringing and then I um, after I left school I, I actually lived on the coast for seven years down at Bowen Heads and studied architecture at Deakin University and, and then came back to Melbourne but I was probably more interested in a, a more inner city urban lifestyle at that point as a contrast to having lived on the coast in a small village at Bowen Heads and um, yeah and then I came back to Richmond after that and I've never moved (laughs) since
0: John just before you got to university at what time I mean I'd love to say was it because all the bricks that were surrounding you but why architecture what motivated Um, that
1: decision I wanted to be a pilot when I grew up but what I thought I was going to do and then I guess I second I questioned that as a career at a certain point in time and thought the alternative to me was probably architecture It was I probably really didn't think about anything else because I was kind of very artistic and very interested in art at the time and a kind of creative space. And my grandfather was an architect, so I grew up around architecture mm-hmm. to some degree. And yeah, so that just seemed like a natural fit. And yeah. I had some friends who were doing architecture down at Deacon who were loving it. So yeah. that was kind of partly why I was attracted to going down there and doing uni <laughs> on the coast and living the, you... living the good life. <laughs>
0: yeah. How was your experience of university? Was, from an architecture perspective, was it what, what you expected?
1: No, I mean, it was, I didn't have a preconceived idea of what it was about. But going to Deakin is a very different experience to say doing architecture at Melbourne University in Melbourne. And we all lived, we lived in coastal villages and kind of came into into Geelong to the Warm Ponds campus to go to uni. So it was, we, we kind of lived in small communities of students. So it was like quite different to going to college or whatever. Mm. I did live with, Quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of my friends were doing architecture i mean some people were doing other courses i mean Liz was doing commerce at the time and we just shared the experience of architecture together and i knew students from different year levels i mean i had friends who were two or three years ahead of me and then i have yeah you know, i had friends who came through behind me a couple of years behind me and i took a year off to travel around australia while i was studying and. I wasn't the perfect student, you know, so, <laughs> so it might have taken me a little bit longer to get through my course than it should have. But, yeah, you get wound up in the lifestyle down there, and and I, but I think it's kind of great as well because it gets just gives you a kind of sense of independence and confidence about what you're doing. And and I moved away from living with my parents at 17 years of age to live on the coast and and do architecture, and yeah, and I developed great friends down there, and and also you're in a you're in a really diverse community. Like you have sort of got all sorts of different people doing different things who live within a small village and have them all. And I worked at the Bowenheads pub, so having worked in the public bar for many years and you you get to know everyone, um, a full cross-section of of a community. And that's a kind of great grounding to architecture because you are dealing with people in the industry, just a a full cross-section of people across the building industry and in the profession and so forth. So, yeah, it just, you know... It's a good, good, good place to start, I guess.
0: And so, what happens after university? You've you've gone around Australia, and then what happens when you finish?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, it, it's interesting. I kind of didn't want to leave the coast. I kind of wanted to stay down there, and I, I actually applied for a job um, with Ron Dannerhe, who I'd done a bit of private work while I was at. Had opportunities to come up to 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 design projects while I was a student. So I did. Did a bit of private work while I was a student, which is slightly unusual. And I registered as a draftsman at the time so that I could do that from a building permit perspective. And I did a house for a friend of mine who was a professional windsurfer at Torquay and met Ron Dennehy, who was a builder who built that house. I was sort of interested in working for, for Ron at the time. And then another part of me was like, I'll come back in the city and go and work for a practice. And I thought if I come to the city, I didn't want to work for a small practice. I was attracted to the idea of the kind of contrast of, you know, the the small village atmosphere at Barwon Heads and coming back and working, just throw myself straight into the city and working a large practice and see where that goes. And ultimately, I ended up getting a job with Daryl Jackson's practice. And it was a little bit of an interesting one because the the kind of – Having come from Deakin University, Daryl had just um, picked up the master plan for Geelong Grammar School and they project that they needed to, which required people to work on site for about six weeks and do a building order to the whole campus. And anyway, that opportunity came up. So it was attractive to me because like halfway, yes. halfway back to the city. So I came back to the city and then ended up working in Geelong for a couple of months at Geelong Grammar and then came back into the city office and, and yeah, and that that was it. That was my only job. Yes. After that, we set up JCB. So. And, and so what's
0: happened happen quite soon
1: afterwards? I worked for Darrell for three years, yeah. so and it gave me some great opportunities. And I worked in some design space with Darrell, hands-on on some small projects, and then I also had a project architect role quite early and was given um, quite a bit of responsibility, ultimately, on the Customs House Museum project towards the end of those three years. So I kind of developed a cross-section of experience and... But I, I I met Tim through yeah. Daryl. Yes. Obviously, Tim's Daryl's son, and Tim ran a studio downstairs, and I I spent a bit of time working with Tim on some smaller projects. I had some private work at the time, and then Graham Burrows as well was working for Daryl. Yeah. He had a little, a couple of private pro, private jobs, and worked on those with Tim as well. So the three of us had had the opportunity to work together in a kind of confined space, separate to the main. Office and just we really enjoyed each other's company and i mean cutting a long story short that's where the interest in working together started and and at the point where we were kind of ready to say well let's do our own thing which is really coming off the back of private work so once you've got a couple of projects finished and they're being published that created other opportunities so we just had a conversation about setting up a practice together and yeah, and I guess there was a question about whether Daryl would be happy about that or not, but he was really supportive. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we, we set up uh, downstairs, level below Daryl's office, and an expanded space that Tim had been working in previously, and we started in there and then um, spent the next 20, 21 years working down there. I mean, we progressively went into another space and went through a wall and then took out another space, and then came back, and ultimately we took out the the whole first floor below Daryl's office. So. And
0: what I mean, I'm just curious around the three partnership. How does that yeah. How does that work? I mean, how do you complement each other?
1: And we're just very different. We're different people, mm. which is good, and we've got different social networks, which is good. So in terms of you know, but when you're starting practice, it's, it's kind of good to have three people with different social networks because it creates different opportunities in terms of work that you can you can potentially attract. But we're all designers, but we all have different skill sets, and we're very different personalities. And there's something—I mean, we're just—we're just lucky to have a partnership that's been really pretty strong all the way through. It's probably challenging for some people in the office too, because the three of us are so close. Like we regularly lunch together. Probably for the last. 20 years we've probably had lunch together at least you know 3 times a week if not 4 so and we continue to do that and there's times where at lunch we don't even talk about work it's just completely off the radar and there's other times where we just talk through issues that we need to resolve and things like that so that's probably been a part of that I that being so close to each other and we sit together yeah it's probably we've just been able to kind of stay the course I mean I've been around yeah, I've had friends who've had challenges in their practices and I think it's it's not easy to, to have a partnership. I think it's mm. it's more difficult probably in architecture to have a partnership of two than it is with three because, of mm. course, kind of with three, you've always got to accept that if two people want to go in a given direction, you just have to ride with it. So I
0: was, um, was going to say And that, that
1: works. Yeah. yeah, I was yeah. going to
0: say, um, I think it was George Lucas... Early on with Ron Howell or something that said, it's always good to have three because you'll get it to a decision very quickly because yeah. there'll always be two against one
1: or, yeah. Yeah, and look, probably, probably earlier, maybe in the first 10 years, there was more challenging times where we had to resolve things together through that kind of that concept of the three and that's that resolves itself. But by the same token, the more time we spent together, the more we kind of understand where our natural fit is and we are able to kind of guide the work and the decisions that we make in a way that we think that would be supported by all three of us. Mm -hmm. So there's much less, yeah, kind of resolution needed in that sense. We're almost, we actually have the ability probably to work quite independently of each other now, but in a very complementary way. Yeah, yeah, it's been a a great partnership and, yeah, yeah, and lots of great, we've had... A great journey with a, a lot of different people over the course of 21 years coming through the practice, mm-hmm. some of which is, are still with us and, and some have moved on.
0: And just going back to the sort of first ten, 10 years, was there a project that you felt really defined the practice? I know this is probably like asking who your favourite child is, but was there something that right. really kind of defined? Yeah,
1: look, we did a little house in West Melbourne, which Tim worked on, that won the Harold Des near Award, and that was quite early in terms of our practice. So that probably little that probably put us on the map a little bit that was a a beautiful little small project a kind of lean to structure on the back of a house in in west melbourne but i I don't think that we look back and say oh there was a given project that sent us off in a given direction i think i think the thing is the three of us are are, are, you know a little bit obsessive and uh, in terms of our kind of commitment to the quality of the architecture or what it can be and so particularly in the early years, we're very committed to the quality of the architecture, not to say that we're not now, but in a way we worked very hard to make sure that we get the most out of every single project. Yes. Probably put more time in than it's practically reasonable in, yeah. in some regards when you look at it with the benefit of hindsight but it was really important that we just committed to the quality and kept putting out good work or what we felt was good work and we were committed to seeing it through and, and having our work photographed and published at the time and we had a bit of work published which was good because it wasn't it's not like today where you can get anything published you just because digitally everything's so just much. shared yeah, yeah back then you had to have a project that had more merit than just a quality photo and and there was limited publishing opportunities as well and we were for, very fortunate have uh, quite a bit of work published early in our kind of early in the development of jcb so that that led to yeah other opportunities obviously
0: it's changed so much i know that when we started the awards one of the i guess positive parts about it from from architects where they were saying it really gave them this platform because yeah we published a magazine it allowed them to use it and things like that whereas now by the time we announced the awards most things have been published on social media yeah I, I mean <laughs> it's it's
1: interesting you say that because I, I have a conversation I mean there's two fields of thought on it but I'm, I'm quite cautious about not putting too much content out on projects During the journey in terms of social media and stuff, because there's a point where you feel like I could say without naming names, but there's other architects who put so much out on their projects that I've lost interest in knowing more about the project Mm. by the time it's published. So the person who's had the opportunity to interrogate that project in a more considered way and to write their perspective on the project Sometimes that's a bit lost, I think, because the, the visual aspect of it has already passed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a challenge for, for everyone. I mean, not just for architecture, but the creative industry is, it's a challenge to balance how much content you put out and when you put it out and where you put it out. And it's a challenge for the industry also to kind of, to really publish work in a, a highly considered way, mm. and rather than just rushing stuff out because they've got their hands on it,
0: yeah. But. And I think I think it also sometimes just becomes a little bit desensitising, like that. All the because you're getting so much on your feeds, you yeah. I mean, we yeah we've actually made a conscious decision to, to pay back what we do because yeah. we get a better engagement. Like less is more, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I
1: think it, I think it's about as you say. It's, it's less is more. Do things well and and keep it tight rather than just publishing everything for i mean there's some there's some fantastic design blogs and and you know web pages around at the moment that have have been doing some wonderful work setting themselves up by yeah. publishing really great projects mm. but now the attraction the advertising and the quality of the project slips because they're able to product place within those design pages and i I just think that it's a it's an interesting space to watch at the moment mm. that there's a kind of you've got to get the balance right and make sure that things don't kind of slide too far yeah. where the, the kind of value or the perceived value or the quality of architecture gets lost amongst a whole lot of other stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an interesting space.
0: Now, you mentioned before in when we were talking about growing up that originally you wanted to become a pilot. So tell us a little bit what you do outside of being an architect.
1: Oh, well, I'm only a few people aware that I do a bit of flying outside architecture. It's kind of my, I guess it's my meditation space to some degree. But I've always had an interest in flying. My parents actually both had their pilot's licenses when they were young, and I did a bit of flying with them as a kid. They don't fly anymore, but yeah, I just picked. I mean, I just picked up the bug. So, yeah, I kind of think there is a really strong relationship between sort of the concept of yeah three three dimensional visualization and architectural process, and the concept of flying because it's a very three dimensional kind of activity. And, and what
0: sort of aircraft
1: are you flying? I fly a range of different aircraft. I've kind of, I mean, I fly. I've got an aircraft that I built, which I built over four years a while back. I think I almost got divorced over that process, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, I built an aircraft over four years. That was a, a fantastic experience. It was something that i would always wanted to do. i mean what you're flying? Yeah, yeah, I fly that now. Yeah, yeah, I finished that um, in 2010. So I've been flying that aircraft for 10 years. And I mean, when I was younger, while I was at uni, I got into hand gliding and I flew competitive hand gliding and then I got into gliding as well and, and then, yeah, ultimately i Built the aircraft and now I'm involved in gliding and um, flying and building aircraft and I've been involved in flying old warbirds, you know, World War Two aircraft. And it's sort of a little bit of an addiction. obsession.
0: Wow. So how often are you flying and where do you fly to?
1: My in-laws live in New South Wales, so I fly up there fairly regularly with the family. But I, I listen, I've had a farm for 20 years I and mean, when we lived in Little River. We left Melbourne for a period of time and lived at our farm down at Little River for... Six or seven, seven years, and I've developed an airstrip there, and I've got a, a hangar and a few friends who they they keep their aircraft out at the airfield there, and yeah, so that's where I base myself in terms of doing my flying, and yeah, and I I'm enough fly all over the place. I've been to Perth a couple of times in Western Australia and up to the north. Northern Territory and
0: when you flying into Sydney do you which yeah. airport? from a
1: time perspective it's quicker to fly commercial mm-hmm. just get in and out because Melbourne to Sydney is such a such a well-structured route but yeah I'm more it's more about going to places that you can't go to from a commercial perspective but yeah it's just a space I like to be and I think the thing for me is that with the things that are on your mind with work I mean when you have your own practice your know, work is always is a part of your life every day of the week seven days a week it's always there but when I go flying, that's when I switch off and I, I'm in a completely different space and I'm in a, a you know, different social group and I'm just, it's my way of separating myself from my work, I guess, yeah.
0: Where do you see the architecture profession going and how have you felt you've contributed to that over the years?
1: Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, I, I think one thing I'd say is I sort of got, i, I Got involved in the um, Institute of Architects at the Victorian chapter level um, when Rob Stent was president at the time. He encouraged me to get involved, and I've I've had a long term friendship with Rob Stent since that time. As a bit, of, yeah, as a mentor and friend. But he, he encouraged me to get involved in that and he could see the value of that space. And I think from, I guess, a practice perspective, there's three of us. So there mm-hmm. is, there is the room for one of us to be able to do some of that, that work and kind of make that con- contribution to the profession. It's pretty rewarding and it's, it's been great for our practice as well. It's, I've met, I've met people through working with the Institute that have then come and worked in our practice mm-hmm. and it's been a way of, of connecting with people within the industry, and I think probably my interest in it more than anything was about just trying to keep a perspective on the value of the profession, I guess, and actually just revisiting what what can architecture do rather than being rather than seeing architecture as a kind of luxury, if you like. Yeah. And and I think we're going to remain aware of the fact that, it's like for example, the attraction everyone's very interested in residential architecture, and it's a very small percentage of the community that that yeah. represents and 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 that's all well and good and it's quite beautiful and people aspire to live like that some people don't but there's a lot of people who are attracted to that but I think it's actually the whole other side of architecture that's far more relevant in terms of what it can do in communities and, and what certain buildings can do in terms of the way we live or we work or through education or otherwise and probably my interest always at the institute was trying to find that balance mm-hmm. and kind of revisit the value of the profession and how we communicate the values of the profession. I yeah, that
0: leads me to my next question with everything going on in the world and it's been fascinating for me to ask architects where they see the role of architecture in what's happening with the environment. Where do you see it?
1: I, th- I think it's critical. If I was to be really frank, I think there's a little bit of a danger that architects say we're environmentalists and we're doing our bit for the environment. But not doing as much as they could. Yeah. So I, I think actually the concept of measuring the the outcomes mm-hmm. is really important, and actually saying, well, critically, what's the difference that we're making, and where can we improve in those areas? So rather than sustainability being an add on, or saying, mm-hmm. yeah, well, look, we double double glazed that building, or we put solar panels on the roof, it's much bigger than that, and it's looking at sort of social and economic sustainability as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think. The accountability of architects is really important and probably it's something that the profession could improve with in terms of as a collective that we actually are prepared to put ourselves on the line and say, let's, you know, Let's be more transparent mm. about the work that we're doing and what the impacts are and architects build a lot of buildings made of a lot of concrete and there's yeah. a big carbon footprint there. So, yeah, I think it's it's more about accountability and, and understanding that and I, I think that'll shift. I mean, it, it's certainly shifting at the moment but it's we've got a lot further to go.
0: Yes, and I, I mean, it's interesting, mm. I think, Probably 10 years ago, it was all around materials, whereas I do think now it's moving more to how do things operate. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. And, and that's a good thing because I think it was all going the other way before in the sense that everyone was double glazing windows so, and then they'd find they'd be putting in air conditioners to make it work. Yeah. And, you, know, you know, on a very simplistic uh, level.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, not to generalise but a lot of people saying yeah we're double glazing windows but then they're buying double glazed glass out of China you know and they're shipping it out and the carbon consumption associated with that's huge so yeah yeah, I, I, I just think it's more about it's more about systems and, and a kind of a more detailed consideration of sustainability as opposed to just saying what materials are you using, what's the carbon footprint of a given material. Yeah. Like for example, like and part of the whole approach with this house that we're in at the moment was that we were totally committed to Australian products mm-hmm. and you that ninety nine percent of this house is built from Australian products. There's a couple of exceptions in terms of appliances and the two baths that are in the bathrooms, but the the commitment to Australian products is about avoiding shipping stuff out here in the first instance. Mm. Um, But also in terms of quality, like the the quality of the house and the durability of the materials, meaning that the house will last a lot longer and that, that has a huge impact compared to building lightweight, affordable structures that actually ultimately are torn down and then replaced. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, and the concept of this house was a house that would be here for a long time, obviously.
0: And, and it is an interesting discussion as well. We've been having that a lot ourselves just around bricks um, are such a product that actually can be reused, whereas there's a lot of products out there that just can't even yeah. at the end of their life. But since we're talking about it, let's yeah. talk about this house. Yeah. Um, we were Before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about you had it for a while yep. and then you sat on it for a while.
1: Yep. And how did this all come it, come to be? Yeah, well, we li- I mean, we lived across the road and we're about to renovate another house. And then um, the opportunity came up to purchase this property. And there was an old house that was built in the late 60s, early 70s on the site, which was one of a f- only a few houses in the street that can be demolished because of the heritage overlay. Mm-hmm. So it was, from my perspective, it was an opportunity to build a new house, but also we were concerned about developers buying the property and potentially ending up with an apartment building of some yeah. description yeah. across the road in a street that's really about freestanding and terrace houses, and it's well-preserved from a heritage perspective. So I guess from my yeah, from an architectural perspective, my, the opportunity for us was to build a new house, but also to put a building in the street that kind of contributed to the street, rather than, yeah, I guess, undermining... The value of the street and the, and the the value of the heritage that existed here. So the house has been designed to kind of complement yeah, the heritage context. But yeah, the brick. I mean, the the, the bricks are really important part because of the, of the setting and the context around other brick buildings. But but it was also my interest in the product and what we could do with the product. You know, rather than using it in a fully conventional way. And it's again, it was about longevity, just the, the concept of building a building that's going to last and that's not temporary in nature. And I think that's a really important part of, of the consideration of brick in projects.
0: And the construction of the house took?
1: Three years. Three years. <laughs>
0: yeah. And you mentioned some of that was during COVID.
1: We finished in late 2020. So the last year of construction was, it was heavily impacted by COVID and, and I actually worked on site. Most of that year, not every day, but I'd put time in on-site pretty frequently and some probably worked an average of about a day a week on-site working with the builders, particularly because it was in the finishing stage and the execution of the detail and stuff just meant that, you know, I could kind of get it to where I wanted it to end up. Mm. It's it's obviously a fairly detailed project. So, um, you know, the time was put into that process and and working closely with trades and getting the most out of them and encouraging them to kind of Believe in the outcome and understand the details was really important in terms of the execution.
0: I'm glad you've mentioned the details because and you've always really, a lot of your projects, I think, back into Harold Street, there was the hit and miss screen and we've got a lot of different embellishments around the bricks. Was that something that you wanted or was it something about working with the Bricklaying and sort of I, making it
1: happen. Look, I worked with Greg Saunders, former bricklaying, and he's he's a fantastic brickie, Like, he's full of beans. And we worked, I just paid Greg on hourly rates to work through the project until we got what we wanted to achieve. So it wasn't about how, it was, wasn't about trying to say, well, can we do it within a certain budget. It was yeah. like, well, this, this is a really important part of the project. In fact, it's the soul of the project is the brickwork. And also, I was interested in these different bonds which you can see and and the way in which we could develop a bond that had a structural relationship to the angled walls as opposed to just being a decorative finish so Mm -hmm. and it it emphasizes i mean the 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 staggered bond that you can see on the angled walls emphasizes the the structural shift to an angled wall as opposed to all the other walls which in the regular alignment are in a more conventional bond even though it actually it's a again it's another considered little way of laying the bricks which we worked on together to kind of establish the pattern that we wanted so it looks fairly conventional at a distance but if you look closely there's actually a pattern throughout that 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 staggered bond so
0: were there any surprises with bricks in this project
1: no not really i mean the the only thing is I mean, it's quite a lot of brick and the brick had to come in, in a few batches. So understanding that the, the way in which a brick like this is manufactured and the potential for the brick colour to vary, for yes. example, over the course of what might be a few different batches of bricks, that's just the, the it's the nature of a natural product. But combined with that, there was a method that we had on site in terms of assembling the bricks that were of different color palettes, if you like, and then blending the bricks so that we got this mottled pattern of, of color. And there is there's multiple colors within the brick, even though it looks at a distance as, as like it's a soft grey. And you know, and, and I was a bit sort of I got fairly wound up in that stuff, I and mean, then I went down to, to Stall to cross bricks a couple of times to work through the yard and pick out the bricks to you know, achieve the outcome that we wanted to.
0: Was that um, a specific? Because they are like they're very long bricks, and you're right. I mean, there are, there's more colours close up, but they're quite a grey white. Was that what you wanted when you were in?
1: Yeah, was that, that was. Yeah, it? I was interested in a light grey brick was yeah. where I started, and through a process of investigation, I landed on these bricks. And uh, yeah, the other thing was a brick format, but it's a long, long narrow format in terms of brick, and that was, you know, that was partly about how I could achieve this bond that we developed for the angled walls. So it's, that's all tied in with each other. But yeah, no, it was look, it was just, I mean, it, ultimately we're just referencing the, the the polychrome brickwork that's next door was a starting point in terms of saying, well, there's a light beige polychrome accent in the in the against the dark. Both on bricks on the property next door, as yeah, and that's some of the original heritage fabric in yeah. the area. But then I didn't want to replicate the, that colonial area of architecture as well. It was about being different, more mm-hmm. about being contemporary, and also being about of the earth. The bricks themselves was about being interested in a light coloured clay that had a connection with the kind of the clay, like this site is clay, underneath it's basically clay of that colour. Yes. So it was how could it, you know, a brick maybe have a stronger relationship with the kind of the site itself as opposed to the context, but also work on both levels.
0: And just like, as I mentioned before, you've been submitting projects to the Brick Awards and been using brick for a long time. Yeah. Have you seen it change over the last sort of decade or not?
1: Oh, look, I, I think architects are more attracted to it. I think durability is a big thing now about building buildings that, that last and longevity is kind of really important. I think brick brick's a natural choice in that regard. But look, the other thing is, and and again, I don't want to generalise with architecture because there's so much other work done. There's so much brickwork built in so many different contexts. So It's not just about architecture, but architects are interested in it not only because... For example, in Melbourne, inner city Melbourne, a good example where there's a lot of heritage protection and the context is often clay brick because mm. we had so many brickyards in Melbourne in terms of Melbourne's kind of colonial development, putting aside Melbourne's indigenous history. And I think ultimately it's a product that makes it easy to work with the with the context and at the same time to deliver, you know, quality outcomes. And then there's so much variation involved in brick, you know, like in terms of the format of the brick, the colour, you can have glazed bricks, you can, you can mix different types of bricks. There's no limit to, to kind of what you can do. It's just a case of, of what you're trying to achieve architecturally or what, you, what comfort level your clients might have <laughs> with what you're doing. But I think that's what's great and it's the diversity that's, that's, that makes the product so attractive.
0: Beautiful. Well, John, we're going to move on to the rapid-fire questions now. All answers are acceptable. Reading the news, a newspaper or online?
1: A newspaper.
0: Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? Both. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks?
1: Uh, I prefer to read.
0: What's important to you, style or substance? Substance. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> TV shows or movies?
1: Both.
0: <laughs> Antique or brand new? Both. Call or text?
1: Can I say both? Is both you can. can. Yeah?
0: Travel back in time or into the future?
1: Back in time.
0: Exterior or interior?
1: Both. Video games
0: or board games?
1: That's quite generalised, isn't it? Exterior or interior? Video games or board games? Uh, video games.
0: Form or function? Both. With relation to design, complex or simple? Uh, simple. John Thomas, thank you very much for joining me today and inviting me into your beautiful house.
1: Thanks, Elizabeth. It's been a uh, absolute pleasure.
0: If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, There's a link in our show notes to let us know.